We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode and catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. Welcome back to Overnight America. One more live hour, and then after that, the replays. You can always get the podcast at Overnight America. Just search for it wherever you find your podcast. Find us online, too, on Facebook, Ryan Record Radio. And Scott has been holding on. Welcome to Overnight America, Scott. Uh, good morning, Mr. Recker. How are you? Doing good. Uh, I'd like to say that regarding this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, from Boston to San Francisco, and every point in between this country, every small restaurant and small business, wherever you may be, you must all band together and refuse to pay your taxes because of the extreme hardship and persecution that has been deliberately, I repeat, deliberately inflicted upon these uh, businesses by a tyrannical and out-of-control government. Let's be honest, this smacks of uh, good old-fashioned communism. Uh, with no tax money coming in, it's the only recourse that, uh, that these uh, small businesses have against uh, local, state, and uh, the federal government. And then they will be forced to really knuckle under and remove the draconian and evil persecution of these small businesses. Yeah, and just real quick, uh, just going back to uh, the way that they're looking at another stimulus package, a lot of it is money going to states that have put these sort of restrictions in place, kind of enabling them and allowing them to do that by by funding them to almost say like, hey, we uh, will supplement the extreme conditions you put these business owners under. I think that's kind of a slap in the face to a lot of business owners. It is. It is. The, the, the one, make no mistake, there is a plan by the New World Order, call it conspiracy plan, whatever you want to call it, but this is the bottom line. The 1% has a ruthless agenda to annihilate the other 99%, which is us, which they consider to be the stupid, dumbed down, the, or the great unwashed masses. And they laugh at us. Okay. And it is time yeah. For- yeah, I hear you. Scott, thank you very much for your call. And I think that the this when it comes to people looking at it this way as in there's it's them against us um i think a lot more people are starting to realize this very quickly they're starting to realize that this this idea of control is more than just them thinking they're doing what is best what they're actually doing is just trying to find more ways to have you become dependent on them and this has been one of the big struggles in american politics for a long time when you hear a lot of these socialist type of ideas that come out there 
you know, we're going to take care of everything. We're going to take care of your life. All you got to do is just hand over your liberties to the government and then everything will be fine. As in, you know, there's no reason to be able to petition the government because don't worry, the government's going to take care of you. Why would you criticize and bite the hand that feeds you? Uh, don't worry about your health care. Why even bother? We'll just have the government take care of it all for you. We'll just have the socialize this. You know, why work? We can have the government supplement through universal basic income. You know, why even bother defending the Second Amendment? You don't need guns when the government could be out there and they'll be the ones that will respond and take care of your every need. Why? Did it, and probably the smartest way I've ever heard of this is, would you walk into the DMV and say to the clerk behind the counter, I want you to I want you to tell me what I need to do with my life. I want you to control everything that happens to me. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think anyone really wants that. I think most people are more afraid at the idea that the government's going to be the ones to dictate what their liberties are allowed to be, as opposed to your God-given liberties, the ones that have been spelled out to you in the Constitution, to instead allow you know the, the trade-off. They always look at it as a trade-off. Oh, life will be so much greater when the government takes this over. And I don't think there are a lot of people that are still subscribed to that. Luckily, if we were to look at it, the 99% to the 1%, luckily, I think that there's a lot more people that are resisting it than are not at this moment. And the same thing, you know, defund the police. We need to do this. We need to do that. You see all of these different giant movements that go in and start to get some ground, defund the Pentagon, do this, do that. Um, it's, it's so contradictory at times, but at the same time, it just goes down to the very basic understanding that government can take care of everything. There'd be no problems in the world as long as your part of the government is the one that was in control. <laughs> we know it doesn't work that way. We need to be really skeptical of the way government has a grasp on us and to not allow them to be the ones that dictate everything in our lives. It goes back to and, and one of the probably earliest moments of where you start to see some of the socialist agenda start to pop in was when Barack Obama was in office as president and he gave that speech and he said, you didn't build that. So, hey, you might have a business, but, oh, you didn't build the road. So you didn't build the business, right? If it wasn't for the government, you wouldn't have anything else that you have here. So why don't you why don't you allow the government to uh, ha just admit that they have more control and they should have more control over you? Because otherwise you wouldn't have anything else in life if it wasn't for this government. When we look at our liberties, and it's very important to point out God-given, meaning that man should not be able to take away life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And when we look at the different constitutional protections that allow you to be free and give you freedom, it's contradictory to say government gave that to you. So you need to keep in mind that this is the government's control allowing you to do this. That's a very dangerous way to look at it. And that's essentially what socialism is. The idea that it's the it's the governments that have put it to you on loan and you are just the, the bearers of it. But ultimately, the government is the one that is in control of everything you do because it's all going to come back to them to begin with. We need to resist things like that. And I think there are a lot of people that do resist those sort of things. So coming up next, we have a... 
weekly conversation with our friend Rich Rabino, author of American Politics on the Rocks. We're going to talk to him about Joe Biden. He gave a speech earlier today about hitting that electoral number 270. What are some of those moments, those last days in office of presidents? What are some of those controversial pardons? What about some of those big packages and deals or any sort of legislation that was pushed towards the end of an outgoing administration? I'm going to talk to Rich about that coming up on Overnight America KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri, play KMOX. Joining us now, our friend Rich Rubino, author of American Politics on the Rocks and Polita-Geek.com. How are you, Rich? I'm doing well, Ryan. How are you? Doing good. The uh, official tally was put in today. The electoral votes are in for Joe Biden. He gave a speech. Uh, this seems all boilerplate, except for all the challenges that are going on. I don't remember. Have there, have there ever been challenges that you can think of that went into the day where the electoral votes were counted? Yeah. So basically, the protocol, the procedure is January 6th is the day when essentially um, the states are the states essentially give their it's in this old mahogany box and inside it are the results and it's usually a formality you have a joint session United States Congress so the so you have the Speaker of the House and that's going to be Nancy Pelosi by the way this is the current Congress not the next Congress and then you're going to have um, and then you're going to have the current Vice President and that's Mike Pence and the Vice President is the President of the Senate they're actually paid. Not as an executive, but as a legislator. As a legislator, so they're so he's actually paid by the United States Senate. So they're going to be up there. And so what's going to happen is Mo Brooks, a congressman from Alabama, has actually said that he is going to try to challenge it. So if you challenge it, essentially, first of all, you need a member of the House and a member of the United States Senate to agree. So if you only have members of the House, it does not go through. Um, otherwise, they have about two hours to essentially debate what the for both chambers to debate what the challenges are. Now, in 2000, there were challenges. Um, there were challenges. Stephanie Tubbs Jones of Ohio had a challenge, um, stood up there. Maxine Waters of California and many members of the Congressional Black Caucus stood up and said, we object. And Al Gore was in the interesting position, Al Gore, who had run against George W. Bush, of saying, are there any senators who agree? And no senators stood up. So as a result, Al Gore had to essentially use his gavel and say, well, therefore, we cannot accept your challenge. Another person would go up. And then at one point, Maxine Waters actually goes up and says, and I don't care if I don't have a senator. And Al Gore says, I have to remind you that the rules do care. So it's a really, it was a really <laughs> awkward position for him. Nixon was the same position, by the way, in 1960. He had lost a razor-close election. A lot of people think he actually won against John F. Kennedy. So he had to sit up there um, as the, in his position as the outgoing president of the United States Senate. Um, he had to essentially rule that he had lost the election. In 1969, Hubert Humphrey was the incumbent vice president, who also lost a really close election. But he was not there because he was, he was attending a funeral for the, for the first secretary general of the United Nations. So Richard Russell, the Senate pro tem, the senator from Georgia, held that, that position essentially. In 2004, the last time you actually did have a challenge, uh, Barbara Boxer, the senator from California, agreed with the challenge, agreed that to, to make a formal challenge to the Senate floor um, that, there were, that, the, that there were irregularities in the ballot in the state of Ohio, um, where John Kerry barely lost to George W. Bush. They spent about two hours debating, then essentially they came back, and George W. Bush was awarded the presidency. So it has been, there certainly have been challenges, but it's usually a kind of pro forma um, thing, and it's kind of a quixotic effort, and nothing actually actualizes out of it. 
Well, it's interesting with Barbara Boxer. I forgot about that. So this would have kind of set the stage of something similar. There could be a senator that stands up and challenges this, at least a Republican senator. And there could be some debate. So what happens during that debate? Is that um, something just the senators debate on or how does that work? Yeah, well, you have essentially both the House and the Senate debate. I mean, the chances of, of, of this actually actualizing, of something actually coming out of this, are astronomically low. It's more or less just playing to the base so that a Republican can go back and say, you know, this is what I did for Donald Trump. This is what I did for the cause. It's kind of a cause celeb, if you will. But nothing's actually going to happen with it because you're not going to get a majority of the House and the Senate to agree um, to the challenge. And if that were the case, by the way, then the electoral call it. Then I'm sorry. Then actually, the United States House and the United States Senate actually end up choosing um, the next president. The House will choose the president. The Senate will choose the new vice president. So theoretically, if you have if you had a scenario where one party controlled one house, the other party controlled the other house, you could have a president um, from one party and a dem- and a, and a, um, a vice president from another party. But this is essentially not going to happen. This is going to be a quixotic effort, 99.99%. Unless there's some sort of incontrovertible proof, some type of a smoking gun that comes in between now and January 6th, they'll probably have two hours. If they can get a senator to agree to debate it, then it's, prob- then it's all going to be over, and Joe Biden will be sworn in president on January 20th of 2021. Right around the corner. He gave a speech today, too, and it was just a brief one, about 15 minutes yep. or so. And I noticed, too, there's still a lot of action going in towards the end of the year. We saw today a group of senators, I think there was some even from the House, where they got together and they were talking about the different amendments they put into a COVID uh, stimulus plan. And, you know, a lot of padding on the back going on there. So, oh, look at us, we're bipartisan. And I was wondering, uh, just the whole bipartisan effort, they made a really big effort to try to show that things are bipartisan here and we can get things done. Uh, I'm wondering if uh, how far back do you have to go before we had to find something that where, uh, you know, bipartisan wasn't a given, as in how far back do you have to go before you start to see this is more or less the normal when it comes to things like spending? Yeah, um, well, it used to be that the, the bi- there was always bipartisanship, but it used to be different because up until about the 1970s, and may, perhaps even later, there were really two Democratic and two Republican parties. So the Democratic Party, you had um, essentially you had moderate to liberal members working with moderate to rep- liberal Republican members. And then on the other side, you had what's called the conservative coalition, which were conservative Democrats and conservative Western Republicans and Southern Democrats that essentially worked together. Southern Democrats had almost nothing in common with Northern, with Northern Democrats and Northern Republicans very liberal Republicans who would not be Republicans today, like Ed Brooke of Massachusetts, Jake Javits of New York, Kenneth Keating of New York, George Aiken of Vermont. Um, they were to say, and Lefren Salsenstahl of Massachusetts, they would be working with the liberal members of the Democratic Party. So you really had two parties in one based on regional. Uh, the difference were more regional and cultural than they were economic. What you have today, essentially, is you have a very bifurcated, bifurcated House and Senate um, what's happened is many of the conservative Democrats who came from more conservative districts have lost their seats. So as a result to Republicans and some of the more liberal or moderate Democrats have essentially lost their seats to have either re- chose to retire or they've lost their own seats to um, to Democrats. And so now you have very few people actually in the center. This past election, by the way, if you look at the folks, the Democrats who actually lost their, their, their House seats, first of all, every single one of them was elected in 2018, so they were all freshmen, and they're pretty much all moderates. 
They were all either blue dogs or new Democrats, the conservative and moderate Democrats. The only exception was, and I always bring him up, Colin Peterson of Minnesota, northern Minnesota. He represented a district that went 30 points for Donald Trump. He only stayed in there in part because he'd been in there since 1990, and he was chairman of the Agriculture Committee, and he was able to bring back a lot of a lot. A, he was able to bring back a, back a lot to the state of Minnesota. So essentially, you have a scenario now where it's really Democrats versus Republicans. Instead of worrying about kind of a cross um, kind of a cross party challenge, most of them are now worried about a primary challenge. So as a result, the further right you can go as a, as a Republican, the further left you can go as a Democrat. It's to your it's beneficially to you politically um, not to try to compromise in the center. So it makes it very hard for those who actually are in the center and are more institutionalists and ideologues that are actually trying to accomplish something and trying to get legislation over the goal line. You know, I had to look online, whatever happened to that Barbara Boxer. I haven't heard that name in a long time. Well, you know who succeeded her was Senator Harris. Oh, that's the same seat. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, this was in 2016, and she ran against Loretta. She ran against Loretta Sanchez, the congresswoman from California. Um, Senator Harris was the attorney general, so that's essentially what happened. So, but this was it. And by the way, this is just in 2017. She retired. So that shows how shows what a short span Senator Harris has actually been in. She's essentially half, just a little halfway through her first term right now. Wow. Uh, Rich Rabino, author of American Politics on the Rocks. I haven't checked in on the progress of your new book. How is that going? Oh, yes. It's going, uh, I pro- it's pro- so it's basically going to be an all-encompassing political tribute book. It's going to be about 400, 450 pages, perhaps. Um, I'm <laughs> hoping I pages. pretty much, oh, yeah, I've encompassed everything I could possibly think of. Any sort of political trivia question I've come over, I've come across over basically the last 10 years. I basically, I'm doing all the organization part. I've, 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 I've accumulated all the information. Now it's just a matter of putting it where it, putting it where it's supposed to go, organizing it, um, acclimating it, that type of a thing. But hopefully, it will be out. I will say by March, late February, early March, right now. You've been working on it hard, and I always like to hear those updates. And you've also been doing a lot of radio appearances and things. I love seeing the different points and places you've been, which is pretty great. It's too bad you can't travel much, but hopefully this whole COVID thing means once the book is out, you'll be able to get out there and start to go back to the groups and talk about it on that sense. That's that's yeah, that's the hope. It's going to be out hopefully right around uh, right a little bit after that time. But obviously the advantage certainly of, you know, of living in the contemporaneous age is you can also do many Zoom interviews. So you don't necessarily have to actually um, be somewhere, and I think a lot of authors have kind of taken that up as opposed to actually traveling, at least during the uh, during the pandemic. Oh, that's great. Richard Bino here joining us. And I was looking at just the talk about another stimulus package. So we had the first one. It was giant. You know, you spent trillions of dollars. It included states. It included individuals. It included businesses. It included loans. It, it hit all kinds of stuff. Uh, money going to pharmaceuticals, uh, development, all of these things. So we're looking at the option for another stimulus package in what they're hoping to be signed before the end of the year. And it's a lot of money. And I know it's kind of unprecedented, but I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, well, we have one administration that's going to be leaving soon. Is that pretty rare to see an outgoing administration be involved or at least a giant spending of something being done right at the tail end of someone's administration? It is because you have a lame duck session. You don't always necessarily have lame duck sessions after a previous election. I mean, obviously you have some members who are retiring that are perhaps looking for some sort of a legacy. So they try to get some sort of largesse, perhaps in their districts or their states, into a piece of legislation. 
Um, normally, though, you know, presidents do tend to work hard in those last few months because they're thinking of their legacy more so than uh, more so than anything else, more so than running for reelection. They're thinking about what they're going to be remembered for. So as a result, you also have memory cabinet members, many people in positions while they're looking for jobs um, in the private sector, perhaps, or perhaps even running for office in 2022. You do have presidents actually working pretty hard in that last month. Um, sometimes we get legislation or executive orders that will come to the president, you know, the last day in office. Um, for example, President Taft back in 1913 actually signed legislation um, establishing the United States Labor Department, believe it or not. I think actually probably the hardest working president on the last day in office, the last kind of the, the last um, time in office was probably actually Jimmy Carter, because he had basically part of the reason he lost reelection was because of the hostage crisis and his handling of it. So he was spending a lot of time trying to negotiate a release of the hostages from the Ayatollah Khomeini's hegemony in Iran. And finally, they did come up with an agreement. Warren Christopher, the guy who became Secretary of State in um, the Clinton administration, came up with what was called the Alders Accord. Basically, the U.S. agreed not to interfere in internal affairs in Iran, and in return, the Iran's agreed. In turn, the Iranians agreed to give up to give the 52 hostages back to the United States. And finally, Jimmy Carter got it on the last day of office, but Iran did not decided they would not actually release the hostages until Jimmy Carter had completely left office and Ronald Reagan had taken over, kind of a last blow to Jimmy Carter. And then Ronald Reagan actually sent Jimmy Carter over to greet the hostages as they came home. But presidents actually worked pretty hard, um, not necessarily, you know, not necessarily trying to get stimulus packages through specifically, but trying to get you know kind of last things, kind of last pieces of legislation, last executive orders, if they can get legislation through Congress. By the way, um, you know, you do have the pardon issue, and oftentimes the last days as they're leaving office, the presidents will pardon people, and it's not going to be controversial. George H. W. Bush pardoning people, and for example, involved. Casper Weinberg involved with the Iran-Contra affair. Um, Bill Clinton on his last day in office pardoned Susan McDougal, the former Whitewater partner, which was a lot of people thought was going to be controversial. But then out of nowhere came, remember, the Mark Rich pardon, the financier who had given money to the Clinton Library, and that became a huge issue um, in the last, day of the, last days of the, the last days of his presidency. But usually you have a whole litany of people who the president potentially could have pardoned throughout the entire administration. All of a sudden they're looking through this and they're saying, should I pardon this person? Should I pardon this person? Probably the best example was Bill Clinton pardoning Fike Symington, the Republican governor of Arizona. And the Republican governor of Arizona had actually he, – so he had, he had had some ethics problems. And But early, earlier when Clinton was younger, Clinton was in a riptide, and Fike Symington actually saved his life. So there was kind of payback in that respect. That was fascinating. Wow. Well, let's talk about some of those pardons maybe after the break. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. And I also had another weird, random question. I don't know oh, if yeah. you know the answer to this. And I'll ask it to you, and then if you, then you can tell me after the break if you know or not. So it might okay. not be a good payoff. Why did presidents take a helicopter ride at when they're leaving the White House? What's the significance of that? Like, And when did that start? Like, where do they even go? Like, hop on a helicopter <laughs> and leave. So maybe I can talk to you about that a little bit. One of those weird <laughs> last questions. And just the last days in office. If there's, uh, I, I love hearing those stories about how presidents spend the last day. So maybe we'll do that after the break, if you can hold on. Oh, yes. American Politics on the Rocks. That's the name of his book. You can find it online. Cannot wait to see his latest creation that he's working on now when that comes out next year. Rich Rabino will continue with him next on Overnight America KMOX. News Radio 1120 KMOX, the voice of the Cardinals. We'd like to check in with our friend Rich Rabino, author of American Politics on the Rocks, plita-geek.com. Thanks for sticking around, Rich. Oh, you're welcome. 
So I wanted to um, first ask you that question. I had no idea if you know the answer to it. So why do the presidents take a helicopter ride when they're leaving the White House? And where does that helicopter go? Well, usually it actually they land up. Um, it goes from the helicopter, then they go to they land up actually on goes to Andrews Air Force Base. Then they land up on the pre, the former president usually lends the current president or the the current president. I guess the, who would now be the president lends the former president Air Force One. Then that takes them to basically wherever they want to go um, because there are different forms of Air Force One. So it's kind of so. For example, um, it, it usually it takes them back. It takes them back home. I mean, some interesting stories on that plane ride. President Lyndon Johnson, go back to 1955, he had a heart attack, he quit smoking, and then when he got on that plane, going back to Texas, um, the first thing he did was he started smoking a cigarette, and all of a sudden his daughter comes up and says, what are you doing? You haven't smoked since 1955, and Johnson said, you know, he said, I've been president, I've raised you two girls, and he said, no, this is going to be my time, so he started smoking, <laughs> and then after he left office, he grew his hair long, gained about 60 pounds, and landed up dying about four years later, so Usually it just takes them back. Um, Richard Nixon, I mean, obviously probably the most, probably the one you're probably thinking of is Richard Nixon getting on the helicopter and giving the victory salute. He then landed up on Air Force One and it took him back to California. But usually it can take them essentially to wherever they want to go um, in order to go home. Um, George W. Bush actually, he actually first went to Midland, which was his hometown. And then after Midland, he landed up going back, going to Dallas, where he was going to move to. Um, and so that's usually the president will actually give a speech when they come home. Um, Harry Truman went back to Independence, Missouri, and even though he was extremely unpopular nationally, there were a litany of people there to see him. In Bill Clinton's case, he didn't. He wasn't going back to Arkansas, so he actually gave a speech to the Arkansas legislature about three days before, um, which was kind of his goodbye to, goodbye to the state of Arkansas. But then, of course, he landed up going to New York, so it was so it was somewhat different there. But usually, that's what it is. It just takes you back to your home state. Yeah. So at the very end of the TV show, MASH, they get on the helicopter and they're flying out and someone writes out goodbye in rocks on the ground. I'm wondering what that message will be for Donald Trump, um, because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of um, a friendliness going on between the two of them right now. I mean, it was friendliness, probably not the right word, but um, that's what I think about. I think about the president waving and leaving and it's like they turn the keys over like, OK, I guess these are yours now. So, uh, you know, here, here's the keys. And I guess if you're the president of the United States, you really don't keep anything in your pocket, do you? You're pretty much getting to walk around anywhere you want with the freedom of not having a wallet or keys or a phone if you don't want it. Uh, well, no, there was actually an instance where George H.W. Bush was running for reelection in 92 when Larry King actually asked him, he said, do you have a license? And Bush actually pulled out his wallet and pulled out his license and actually showed it to him. Um, I will say the one tr the one precedent that Trump that would be positive for Trump is Grover Cleveland because Grover Cleveland so Grover Cleveland loses in 1888 he actually wins in the elect in the um, national popular vote but loses in the electoral college and then that day in his inauguration Francis Folsom Cleveland his wife says to the people who are working at the White House says to the staff keep the place nice we'll be back in four years. So it was a humiliating day that day for Cleveland because it was raining. There was a downpour when Benjamin Harrison was being inaugurated, and Cleveland had this um, had this burden of actually having to carry, have to have to hold rather the um, the umbrella over his rival Benjamin Harrison. But sure enough, four years later, Grover Cleveland did come back, and he was the only one-term president who came back after serving um, after being in exile for a couple of years and coming back. So that's the one precedent that certainly um, is positive for Donald Trump. 
I like this idea of LBJ saying, now it's my time. <laughs> yes, putting his yes. hair out. <laughs> Look thinking, at a picture I, of him in know. 1972, 1973. It's amazing when he looks like a hippie. Yeah, he does. You're right. I, you know, I wanted to also go back and talk about some of those pardons because it seems like towards the end, people are wondering who those will be for Donald Trump. They talk about the Edward Snowdens of the world or the Julian Assange's of the world, people that may have been whistleblowers, things like that. Some people even floated the idea of him uh, pardoning you know, people close to him, like family members. One person even said, hypothetically, he could step down and then Vice President Pence would become President Pence, and then Pence would pardon Donald Trump on the way yes. out like that. There's a lot of these weird hypotheticals that people have come up with. Really looking at, um, I guess, controversial pardons. You mentioned some from the previous administrations. Um, for the most part, presidents are like really busy pardoning. That They all do that right up till the end of their administration, don't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Andrew Johnson, you know, he was a master at it. He basically pardoned um, anyone who was sympathetic from to the South, for example, because Andrew Johnson had always had sympathy to the South. He was literally there rubber stamping um, all these pardons of people who had been seen as traitors because they had supported the South, uh, that type of thing. It goes throughout the entire administration. A president has the power to pardon, at least for federal crimes. We saw, for example, Donald Trump, you know, pardoning Rob Blagojevich. After he fired him on Celebrity Apprentice, he still, um, the former governor of Illinois, he still ended up, you know, pardoning him. Then Blagojevich became a rare uh, Democrat for Donald Trump. Usually, you do have on the kind of the very last day of office, you do have those pardons. I mean, Bill Clinton, in Bill Clinton's case, it was essentially you know 140 of them. One of them was his own brother for cocaine possession, um, which he had actually been in jail for. Back in 1985, there were also a lot of people who had applied for pardons that time who did not get it. I guess Bill Clinton was sympathetic to pardoning Jim Guy Tucker, his successor as governor of Arkansas, who was enveloped in the Whitewater um, ordeal, but he was kind of talked out of it because it would be seen as kind of a conflict. But he did pardon Susan McDougall, um, who was involved in Whitewater. He had, he, he had pardoned a lot of people that he had known certainly through his life. Eventually, there was a federal investigation that ruled that there was no illegal play anyways there. Um, in, in the case of Barack Obama, he pardoned a lot of nonviolent uh, drug offenders. He pardoned William McCovey, who was involved. Um, actually, the uh, former San Francisco uh, Giant and Hall of Famer was pardoned. But, you know, the interesting one was actually not a president, but it was actually a governor. There was a guy named Roy Blanton, and Roy Blanton was the governor of Tennessee. He had served two terms, and as he was leaving, he started pardoning all these people. And there was, it became, uh, became, he started to pardon people who were essentially who had been involved uh, with his gubernatorial career, people who had been, people who would have been involved, um, you know, with kickbacks, that type of a thing. Um, and and they got to got to this point where they were afraid of what was going to happen. So this this was these were Democrats now, the Democratic lieutenant governor and the Democratic speaker of the House got together and they actually looked in the Tennessee Constitution and found a provision that in a case of an emergency, you can actually you can actually appoint the new governor a couple of days before um, the new a couple of days before he's constitutionally supposed to be sworn in. So they had an emergency session and they swore in Lamar Alexander, the Republican. This is about three days before um, he was actually supposed to take office because they were afraid of who this of who Roy Blanton was actually going to pardon in those last few days. So pardoning is always, you know, it's always it's kind of a power that a president has. And certainly, you know, if obviously if you cross the president, um, you, you worry about potentially not if you have some sort of a criminal indictment not being pardoned. And that's one certainly conspiracy theory. Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas, 
who led the movement to um, to basically sue and say that the uh, and to sue on behalf of the state of Texas and to say that you know Donald Trump had actually won the election. Um, you know, the possibility there's a lot of people who now think that Donald Trump will come out and um, certainly pardon him is kind of a reproach ma for that. Yeah, there's a couple of names and people that have been floated around. Um, uh, who did I'm trying to remember President Obama pardon on his way out? You, you mentioned there was some was William McCovey was one McCovey. OK. And what was that one about again? Well, William McCovey, I believe it was something to do with uh, something to do with tax evasion. I believe he was this was more kind of a fun one almost because he was um, you know, he was a former uh, he was a former Major League Baseball player. But interestingly, Rob Lagojevich's family was trying to do everything they possibly could to get Barack Obama to pardon him. Remember, Blagojevich, go back to 2008. This was the guy who was allegedly tried to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat to the highest right, bidder. Yeah. He had the power. He was governor of Illinois. And his family, you know, really lashed out at Barack Obama. Barack Obama had been a sort of an ally uh, when Blagojevich was governor. Barack Obama was in the state Senate. Blagojevich had signed some of his legislation. And they really thought that Obama was going to pardon Blagojevich. And last minute, he did not pardon Blagojevich. And as a result, you know, Atlanta and Donald Trump was actually the person who pardoned Rob Blagojevich. So Rob Blagojevich kind of changed his partisan allegiances and now is certainly one of those rare Democrats for Donald Trump. But certainly the the Blagojevich family, I guess there was one instance where they actually met with somebody at the White House and they kind of said, put this in your back pocket. And it was a letter from, you know, a letter about why Rob Blagojevich, their father, um, they thought should have been pardoned. Well, let's. I'm just curious your opinion on this. Some people wonder if Donald Trump will run again for the 2024 election. And I'm curious your gut feeling. Do you think that he would do that? Yes, I do. Um, I think that he has a base, and I think he likes being kind of hegemonic over that base. He likes to be um, he likes to be kind of the person in charge, if you will. He likes to be the tribune of that base, whether he thinks he's going to win or not win. I can envision a scenario where he at least does not toy with the idea of running in part because I think in history – he, is not, he wants there always to be a question about the legitimacy of the election. And by running again, essentially he's saying, you know, I won the last time, and now I'm just trying to bring back, now I'm just trying to essentially um, run for almost like a third term, and it was, it was taken from me, it was purloined from me, it was stolen from me. It's hard for me to imagine him, you know, doing what Jimmy Carter did and just um, going working on his library and then spending the rest of his time working for Habitat for Humanities and going around the world. Um, I think he will... You know, I, th- I think he will certainly spend he will certainly spend some of his time in the li- working on his library. And I'm fascinated where the library is actually going to be. Will it be in Mar-a-Lago? Will it be at Trump Tower? Um, I'm, that's something that's really is um, fast. That really is fascinating because usually presidents spend spend some time while they're in office determining where it's going to be. Whether it was Gerald Ford was going to be in Grand Rapids, Jimmy Carter in Georgia, Bill Clinton in Little Rock, but there really hasn't been any hint of where Donald Trump is actually going to do with his library and where it is actually going to be. That's an interesting point, and I would uh, also be curious. Now, there is, by the way, a fantastic uh, replica of the Oval Office here in St. Louis at a place called the Magic House. It's mostly a children's place, but they have an awesome room. that, And then they also have where the press secretary would talk to the press. There's like a replica of that right next yep. to it, which is pretty cool. Um, and I love to see those replicas. I've never been to a presidential library. I've been wanting to, but never have made it out to one. I've been to two. I've been to uh, the Kennedy Library a few times. It's actually uh, smaller than I think you would. Th- it's smaller than I think you, you would think it's going to be. And I went to the Gerald Ford Library in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And you know, the Gerald Ford Library um, is actually it's relatively small, but it's very um, it's very interesting. You know, I remember seeing the big drum that he used when he was in high school band, that type of thing. But 
they're both um, they're they're very they're very interesting. They're interesting perspectives. Obviously, when you go there, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Any presidential library, they're going to try to propagandize it to um, you know to, to, to in favor of that particular president. But I guess the closest to, in St. Louis would probably be the Truman Library in Independence. But you know, the first library, by the way, is actually the Rutherford B. Hayes Library because his son Webb Hayes. Um, who worked for him at the White House, actually, um, was the one who kind of began this whole idea of having a presidential library. And Hayes is a hero in Paraguay because as president, he negotiated this, tre- this agreement between, um, between, Par- with, with, between with Paraguay and Ecuador, which really benefited Paraguay, and they had the Chaco territory, which was given to Paraguay. They actually have a soccer team named after him, a province named after him. And there was a young boy who was on a coma, and when he came out of the coma, they said, what's your one request when you come out? He said, I want to visit the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library in Fremont, Ohio. I don't know if too many people ever, that's the only time that were, uh, those words have ever been said together up until right now. Um, <laughs> let's. One other thing, I hope as part of his presidential library, they include that photograph of him playing cards with the former Republican presidents. He had like one of those oh, yes, um, yes. paintings up in the White House or somewhere around the vicinity. Okay, so polit-geek.com, that's where people can find you online. And on Amazon, they can find your book, American Politics on the Rocks. And on social media, where can they find you, Rich? Yep, you can go to uh, my Facebook account, certainly Rich, and then last name R-U-B-I-N-O, and you can see some of my interviews there. Or you can go to www.polita-geek.com or simply on Twitter at Rich Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O, and then P-O-L. Perfect. Rich Rubino joins us on Mondays, and since I'm off the next couple of weeks, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you, Rich. Yes, thank you. You as well. And he joins us on the Quiver River Electric Guest Line on Overnight America, KMOX. Now back to Overnight America on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. It's really amazing how fast these nights go by. Well, that does it for us on Overnight America. We'll be back again tomorrow after SLU basketball. I even think Mark Reardon's joining us tomorrow night, which will be pretty cool. But otherwise, the replay hours are coming up next. Get the podcast by searching for Overnight America wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh.